It's not very often that a, a pastor has somebody come up and offer to preach for him. So I want to thank Cannon from the, from the front here. He came up and said, hey, if you need me to come up and talk today. Now, if you guys put him up to that because you want to hear him over me, I'll try not to be offended by it. But, but thank you, Cannon. And we're going to try to get you up here sometime soon to help me out in a, in a, in a sermon. That would be really cool. So that was, that was quite the encouragement. Thank you. That made me, that made me smile. So. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. It's been a great week. I got a little bit of a cough. No, thanks to the, the postal service and the U.S. government, we know I don't have COVID, so we're tested up, we're good. Uh, but uh, I, I, I may have to cough a couple of times this morning, and for that I apologize ahead of time. Um, because yeah, it's, it's kind of grabbed me. I don't know that standing out in the wind for seven hours yesterday helped either, but not complaining, had a great time. And really, if, if you think about it, we've been talking to Peter about suffering and more suffering for your faith, that sort of thing. But we also have talked about just the stuff that comes into our life. And sometimes it's health and sometimes it's family issues and sometimes it's your work issues. And sometimes it's, you know, and Peter's been saying, man, stand strong, stay on point. And as Pastor Brian and I this week, as we were studying and praying over this sermon, we kind of were talking about the idea of staying on point, living on point to bring glory to God. And it reminded me of back when my older boys, a little bit different probably than, than Cole, who's, who's a senior this year. But back when my boys were in high school, my older boys, uh, they, they would talk about things being on point. And that meant good. Like they would say like your outfit's on point or, you know, those shoes are on point or whatever. And I know things change quickly. So for all you guys who are now in high school, you're probably looking at me like, yeah. That's not something we say anymore. That's not the, that's not the right, uh, lingo. And, and I admit I'm, I'm a little bit older. So I'm not always current and up to date on it. But I think Peter today is going to tell us to live on point. In other words, we need to do what we know to do, right? Through the, through the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures. We need to live on point ultimately to bring glory to God. And I think we've seen that in First Peter, uh, back in chapter 2. It talked about the persecution and the way that you respond to persecution could cause the people that are persecuting you to bring glory to God. So this isn't a new concept that he's bringing up here in these few verses that we're going to look at today, but it's one that I think is really relevant. So I hope today you'll look at your life and you'll say, am I living on point Okay, not trying to be hip and cool with the exact lingo, but this, the, 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 the thought process is still there. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Am I living the way that God has called me to live? Am I prioritizing what God wants me to prioritize in my life? And if I am, I can bring glory to God because of that, right? And if I'm not, I'm missing out on an opportunity to bring glory to God. So the encouragement today... Live on point, bring glory to God. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be just looking at verses 7 to 11 today. And, and I think that it's, it's going to be hopefully an, a, a, a segment of this book that takes the rest of it, everything else that has happened, and allows the believer to focus in on how they should live in the here and now, in light of everything that's going on, 
and best uh, the best ways that we can bring glory to God. And so in a world of adversity, we can glorify God through deep, genuine, gracious love for each other. So let's dive right in. Starting, I'm actually going to read all four verses first, and then we'll kind of break it, break it down, uh, and look at, and look at what Peter was saying. But I'm going to read seven through eleven right now. Uh, and so if you have your, your Bibles along with you, I want to invite you to open up to them in case Holy Spirit nudges you to either highlight something, circle it, or make a note. Uh, something that you might be able to go back to later in the week, uh, and, and find encouragement in. And I'm going to read these four verses to start. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to bring him or to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great few verses, right? I guess it's actually five verses, but what a great few verses. What encouragement is there? What a powerful statement Peter is making in light of what he's written, the reality of the day, the dispersed and persecuted church, in light of his own life, the ups and down of being the disciple with the big mouth, Right? Opening his mouth, always shoving his foot in it. And all the way up to the night of the, of, of the betrayal and the crucifixion where Peter fell asleep. He didn't keep watch. He wasn't fervent in his prayers. And then because he wasn't ready for that adversity, because he wasn't ready for that trial, he denied his best friend, denied even knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. He's gotten to a place where Holy Spirit has allowed growth in his life so that Peter has become the man of God that he intended him to be, that he is writing these words that here 2,000 years later can be an encouragement to you and I. And so we have this letter. It's dealing with suffering and adversity, but it's a great section for Christians both today and the original readers 2,000 years ago to look at and understand that we are here on this earth for a reason, to bring glory to God, to take care of each other, right? And to be a light to this world. And so we're going to look at the, uh, the, these verses, a few uh, different, different main points that hopefully will be things that you can grab a hold of and, and apply to your life. He starts out that the end of all things are at hand. Now, there are phases in human history. What Peter would have been thinking is he would have been thinking about Israel, his, his home, his, um, the, the countrymen, the Israelites, the, the life that they've had, this dispersion, what had come before that, all the way back to even creation, uh, and everything that had happened. He's thinking about that. And he's going, there are a lot of phases in human history and they're behind us. And now the redemption of mankind, Jesus Christ, God coming to earth, 
in the form of his son. He's been here. He died on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day and he's gone to glory. And now Peter knows that there's only one thing that needs to take place. The same thing that you and I know, Jesus needs to return, but we don't know the time or the date We know that from scripture, multiple places, and Peter understands that. And so Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection has kind of inaugurated the last days. And that's why he says the end of all things that are are at hand. Jesus will come again. This isn't Peter being a doomsdayer, right? He's not, you know, woe is us, the end of time, the world's going to end. But it's one that should give Christians a confidence in the triumph of the Savior on the cross. And so when Peter says this, don't read it the wrong way. Peter is saying you can have confidence and faith that the end is near, the end is coming, but we know what's coming. So the life of the church should be affected by this truth, by this statement. God now lives out his mission through the work of the church. And I'm pointing at you guys because just like Dave said, we love to get out into the community and do whatever the community is doing, be a blessing, support what they're doing, live in the community so that people are attracted to you and say, what's different about you? We can't stay holed up in Chloe Clark's, you know, gymnasium and have donuts and and create friendships and, and not ever get outside the doors or the walls of this church, right? We need to be out there living the mission that God has given us. And we look ahead to Jesus' return. We don't know when, but it should create a sense of urgency. Look at, look at this passage out of Matthew 24, verse 36 and then 42 to 44. This is Jesus himself saying, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And then he jumps ahead a few verses and says, therefore stay awake for you do not know what, the, or what day the Lord is coming, but know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So kind of what I talked about earlier, there's a couple different times in scripture that talk about Jesus' return, that we don't know when it's going to happening or it's going to happen. Here we even see that the son, Jesus Christ, does not know when the father God is going to send him to return to earth to collect the church. Now you might be thinking, well, that's kind of weird. He's God. He should know everything. Well, again, God allows himself to be veiled to certain things. And, and just like when Jesus came to earth, he was fully God, fully man. He allowed himself to feel pain, to be tempted yet without sin, right? So God has allowed himself at different times to veil his deity in certain ways. And we see that here. It doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't contradict scripture and it doesn't lessen our faith. But Jesus Christ does not know when the return is. God the Father alone does. And we need to be ready for the Son of Man because he is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So we need to live in anticipation of this. We need to look ahead. We need everything that we do and say needs to be with that in the the forefront of our minds. 
So I would go to youth group events. Um, I haven't in a couple of years because we haven't had them. But even up until a couple of years ago, I loved going to youth group events. And I would go to be the pastor that would stay up all night. Right? I could do this. And I did it. I did it also at the high school when we would do football uh, camps over in Ellensburg or other places. I would go along and I would sit watch because I knew one of those kids was going to get up. And usually it wasn't one. It usually was a little group. And they were going to try to do something. And I would be there ready to catch them. Right? I had to stay awake. I was on guard right? My watching game was on point, right? I was, I was ready for them to move. At the football camps, I would sit there. My air mattress would be up on the wall where all the coaches would have their air mattresses, all the football players out in the rest of the gymnasium. I would sit there all night long and I had my flashlight ready, right? I'd usually be reading something with a little book light or whatever. And as soon as those kids started moving around, I was able to hit them with the flashlight, right? I anticipated. I was ready, I stayed on my toes, right? Because I didn't want them to sneak out when the eight or nine of us football coaches were sound asleep or the youth pastor and the other volunteers had dozed off and fall asleep. We need to watch for those kids and what they might get up and do. Because usually it would be like teepeeing our cars or doing something else in the church or in the school in the case of the football players. We don't want them messing around, right? And so I wanted to be there to surprise them, right? I was on, I was awake, I was ready. And they knew it. After a few years, I got known they couldn't mess around at football camps because Coach Miller stays awake all night. I don't know when that guy sleeps, but he stays awake all night, right? And I had to be ready for that. And that's how we've been called to live, Now, go to sleep, get your rest. I'm not telling you to stay up all night, but we need to live our lives with the anticipation of Jesus Christ's return. Jesus Christ is coming again to get his church, to bring his church to heaven, to receive his church. And we need to say to ourselves, well, I need to live now for Jesus Christ. Not say, well, I'm young, maybe in a few years I'll get more serious about my faith. Or once my kids are gone, I'll have more time to focus in on God. So right now I'm just going to focus in on my family. Or, you know, this is the opportunity for me to make a ton of money. I'm going to focus in on work and I'll take God more seriously in a few years. We don't know how many years we have on this earth. And we don't know even more so when Christ is going to return. So we need to be ready. We need to live on point. We need to live with anticipation because the end is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The Apostle Peter here is assuming that you are praying. As a believer, one of the first things we need to understand is God wants to hear from his children. You don't have to have to know how to pray, right? You don't have to know how to pray. You just talk to God. And a lot of times we see people that are good praying and and, and we get a little bit like, oh man, I could never pray that good. So maybe I just don't need to pray. And yet we need to realize that God has called his children and invited his children to pray. Jesus talked about that. You need to be praying, right? We are invited to approach God in the good times and in the bad times. He wants to hear from his children. Just like all you parents out there know that you wanted to hear from your kids in the good times and in the bad times. If your children feel like they can only go to you when things are going good, we've missed something, 
right? Our kids need to know that in the worst times, we want them to come to us so that we can help them through it. Not to slam down a big fist, a heavy hand on their shoulder or on their head, and say, you messed up. No, we want to be there to help them through it. And it's the same here for God. And so Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Possess a cool head and a balanced spirit. Exercise self-control. And don't panic. Remember, Jesus is in control. This made me think of the old commercials. You, a lot of you might be too young, but Chester Cheetah. You remember Chester Cheetah? Anybody? Or am I alone? I got a few people. Good, good. Chester Cheetah. You remember what he was? He was the spokesman for Cheetos, right? He was a cool dude in a loose mood, right? And he had his glasses on and his bag of Cheetos. And, and I thought of that when I said that. This is, this is, Chester Cheetah enjoyed his Cheetos, right? And he just, he never was shaken by anything that would happen in those commercials. He was focused in, right? He knew that he wanted his Cheetos, and no matter what chaos went on around him, he protected that bag of Cheetos. In this way, Peter is saying, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You need to be focused in on that, Peter knew this because Peter failed when he should have prayed. Back at the garden, when he should have stayed up all night praying, he fell asleep. I can't imagine that he wrote these words without thinking about that night. Right? Jesus asked him, hey, disciples, you're my closest friends. Stay awake. Stay alert. Pray. And he fell asleep. He fell into temptation. Even that night... To deny that he knew Jesus Christ, and he did that three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. He denied his Savior, his best friend. Peter knew this, and he, he wants you not to make the same mistake that he has made. So he's been, he says, you're a people who are called to prayer, and this is the mindset that you need to have. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what the situation is, we need to be prayer warriors. And going back to what I said earlier, you may say, well, I, I can't pray. I don't know how to do it. I'm not, I'm not sure how it is. It is talking to God. And there is direction on how to pray in our Bibles so we can read about it. We can study about it. We can become better. Uh, and, and again, trying to focus on the, the people who are outside of our, our, uh, immediate family and, and the living in our community and in our world. And, and a lot of that sort of direction is in there, but you can cry out to God for any reason at any time. And he hears you as one of his children. And so Peter wants you to know that, Hey, we are part of God's plan. The end is near. You are dependent on him. You need to keep praying, right? Because that builds intimacy with the Father. Jesus Christ is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. You know what interceding means, right? Going between, right? My wife will sometimes intercede for the kids. The kids have come to her and said, hey, can you talk to dad about such and such? And my wife will come on their behalf. Jesus Christ is doing that right now for you and for me. You can pray to God and Jesus Christ is talking to his father about what you're praying about. That's what the scriptures say. So we're building intimacy with God, the creator God, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. They all want to be friends with you. 
They want to be intimate with you and they invite you to pray with them. And then it also demonstrates dependence on them. Again, we keep going back to the parent uh, analogy because it's so easy to go to. When your children come and ask you for help, it is fun a lot of times. I know sometimes it bothers us or we're in the middle of something and we can get bugged by it. But if you think about it, these are little people who need your help. And that's fun. I love that. And now my little person stands four inches taller than me, right? And he's 18. And in a lot of ways, he's a young man. But I still love it when he comes to me and says, Dad, can you help me with something? There's nothing like that. And that's what God the Father is inviting you to do. Come to me. Be dependent on me. When things are going bad, come to me and talk to me about it. Ask of me. Now, I may be teaching you something through it, but I'm here for you. And when something's going really, really good, don't you love it when your kids come and tell you something that's really cool that's happened in their life? Well, God wants that too. A lot of times as parents, we already know. We've seen what they've done. We've seen what's happened. And yet we love it when they come and tell us what happened, what's making them happy, what's making them excited. And that's the same for God the Father. He knows what's going on in our lives, but he wants you to come and tell him about it. So Peter says, live on point, because living on point brings glory to God. And we're going to see this in the next few verses also. So, so verse 11b, it says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the end of the passage. That's where we're going. We've talked about this. We want to bring glory to God. If our lives are on point, they bring glory to God. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and our lives that he empowers us to live. We need to remember that Jesus is the link to God the Father, the relationship that we can have with God the Father. Jesus is our gift giver, and it's all about bringing glory to him. And as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know that. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we say should bring honor and glory to God the Father. And through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we know that, right? As we grow in our relationship and become a little bit more like Jesus Christ every day, work our way down the path of discipleship, we will understand it better and better that the things that we say, the things that we need or that we do need to bring honor and glory to God. Look at this next, this verse here in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter, they both agree. Everything we do, everything we say is an opportunity to bring glory to God the Father. The glory of God should be the basis for everything that we do and we say. When you're making a decision about something you want to do or how you want to respond to a situation, ask yourself, will this uh, bring God's glory, right, to the situation? Will this bring God glory by my response, Now, this isn't a license to just slap a label like glory of God on anything you want to do or say, right? We need to think it through. We need to make wise decisions because there are things that we do. There are things that we say that don't glorify God. And I need to be careful about that. And you need to be careful about that. We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded asking what I'm about to think or say or do. Will that bring glory 
and honor to God, that's where our brains need to be. That's the spotlight at the end of this section, verses 7 to 11, to bring glory to God. So verses 8 through 11a, what we're going to look at really quickly now, is Peter's giving us some ideas on how we can do this. It's not exhaustive, but these are just some ideas. And I'm telling you, if you get these three or four things down, your life will look a lot different than when you were just walking kind of aimlessly or, or maybe without direction. You weren't quite on point yet. So let's look at these quickly and, and see how we can be encouraged by what Peter says. The first thing he says in verse 8 is, Love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Did you notice love one another is a command? He doesn't say if you want to love one another or people you like love. No, he says love one another, right? And, and Peter's commanding us to do something, not to feel some way. So we have to remember that love is not a feeling. Love is a choice, Right? A lot of times in the world, we think about love and it's the, oh, you know, I fell in love with this person and I bought her this teddy bear for Valentine's Day and I feel so good when I'm around her and she's so much fun. And when we, we hold hands, I get all flushed in the face. I can't, you know, I mean, all those kind of things, right? That's what we think about when we think about love, but that's not really love. That's not a true definition of love. Right? We know from scripture, there's a ton of definitions of love and they all come back to the same thing. It's a choice. Greater love hath no man than this than one who would lay down his life for a friend. That is a choice. I'm going to live the kind of life that I'm going to self-sacrifice for someone else, right? And we all know this. If you've been around the church at all, the idea of love is different than the world's definition of love. And so here we got to remember that when we're looking at this. Right? This is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. Right? It's not an emotion. Right? Or, or a decision based on the way we feel. But it's a decision based on the reality and the truths that we have. Because it's a decision, that means it's a state of mind. We get to create who we are in here, right? By the, the truths that we believe. And we can do it earnestly. Or fervently, right? We can stretch or to strain. And this effort is beyond normal, right? You can't go into this just kind of feeling like, I'm good. You know, you got to stress and strive and strain to go after the love that God has called us to live amongst those around us. And Peter knows this and calls us to this. Our deep and genuine love for one another doesn't atone for sins, Right? That's not what he's saying here when it says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus Christ's blood is the only thing that can do that. So when someone sins against you, there may be and there probably still will be consequence. But so what is Peter exactly calling us to? Let's keep looking at this, right? Our love for people, especially those in the body of Christ, calls us to be people who are gracious. And look past things. So one of the things we talked about a lot this week was just the idea of somebody that you know loves you may still say something or do something that hurts you or offends you. And and so Pastor Brian and I were talking like, is that sin? Is it really sin what they did or am I just bummed out? 
What exactly is Peter talking about here? Because sometimes somebody will say something that really hurts me or offends me, but I know that person loves me and I know I love them, but I'm still bummed out. And now I have a choice. Do I make a big deal of what they did or said? Do I need to call them out on this or was it unintentional? And this is an opportunity an opportunity for me to cover it, to just let it go. I know the truth about this person. I know that they love me. They probably didn't mean to hurt, my, hurt me. Is this something I can overlook? Right? Because if it's sin and we have that responsibility or that obligation to, to talk to them about it so they can make it right with God, or do we trust Holy Spirit? We, we, look, we went down all those paths this week. Right? Because we wanted to understand what Peter was trying to say here. And, and we were kicked over to Proverbs 10 in our study. So if you're taking notes, write down Proverbs 10 verse 12. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Okay, so we got the book of Proverbs, right? Which we did the summer of Proverbs last year. We know that it's wisdom literature. It's not promises. It's a book that if you live out, your life is actually going to go a lot better than it is if you don't live it out. But it doesn't mean that if you do something that it's always going to happen, the result, right? So there are a lot of variables still in Proverbs, but there's a ton of wisdom there. And so we saw the same concept, the same idea here, that love covers offenses, The world loves to watch you and I, us, the church, point out what's wrong with other Christians or other churches, right? They sit back and they laugh at it because we choose to disagree and fight over some of the silliest things, right? And we get all offended and we can't believe this church is doing this, so we talk bad about them. And yet nowhere in scripture are we allowed to or asked to critique what another church is doing unless it's sinful. But my point is just because they do something different doesn't give us the right to talk bad about them, but we tear each other apart, right? We don't live graciously or loving towards our own people. Our love, especially when things are difficult, when tough things are going on, when there's disagreement should be what defines us to the rest of the world. And unfortunately, we've seen this over the last couple of years with COVID and some of the other things with the race relations and and stuff like that. There are churches that are literally battling each other over the way they handle or look at the things that are going on in this world. And it makes us look like a bunch of jerks. And I think that Peter here, in addition to other places in scripture, is saying love covers a multitude of sins. We have an opportunity to love like Jesus, right? Now, Jesus, his love covered our sins. So when we die and we stand before the throne and God looks at me, right? He doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ applied to my account. We've talked about that many times, right? So Jesus, his, his blood literally covers our sins. It, it, it actually sends it as far as the east is from the west, right? I mean, it removes it from us. It covers us. We, as people, have an opportunity to be gracious in our love to each other and cover things that aren't that big of a deal. And yet a lot of times we allow them to become big deals and then we're that black eye for Christianity, 
people look at us and say, man, if that's Christians treating each other that way, I don't want to be any part of it. Right? And so Peter is calling us to something better, something bigger. If we truly live out this concept, the world would take notice of us. Remember back in chapter 2? The persecution of the people and the way you respond brought those people that were persecuting you to glorify God. That's what we have an opportunity to do. We can live out a different way than what the world would normally do or respond like. We, like Jesus said, would be known by our love for each other instead of our sinful thoughts, words, and interactions. Which, if we're not careful, that's the path we want to go down naturally. But because we love, we can assume the best about someone. Because we love, we can extend forgiveness when somebody else messes up. We can forgive them and not hold them in a, in a, in a place in our hearts and in our minds that we're frustrated or upset or we're not going to forgive them this time. They don't deserve it. But because we love, we can own up our own mess-ups and seek forgiveness. We don't have to allow pride to hold us back. We can go to that person and say, I screwed up. Will you forgive me? One of the most powerful people that we can do that to is our family members, our spouses, our children, right? Those are the people that sometimes we withhold forgiveness or we don't seek forgiveness quickly enough from. Because we love, we, we can be gracious with those pesky offenses. Instead of being offended by something that somebody does or says, when it's directed towards us intentionally or not, we can overlook that. That's the kind of person I want to be. Ask yourself, can I do this? Is this something you're currently doing or you've done in the past or that you could do? Love is an identifying mark in the family of faith. And I want that mark on me. John thirteen thirty five says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is important to Jesus. It should be important to us. Jesus was encouraging his disciples here uh, to love each other for the world to see. Jesus loved us. His blood covers us, right? And so that when the father looks at us, he sees his son, right? The once rebellious children, sinful children. Instead, he sees the precious blood of Jesus Christ applied to our account. That's the example that we've been given in how to live for love. Let's keep moving on here. It says, and I love, uh, I, I should say, I love where Peter goes next. It says, um, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we're coming out of a section on love, and he goes right into hospitality. There are a ton of views on what hospitality is or isn't, but here we see Peter encouraging people to show hospitality. We know in this day and age that there were a lot of traveling missionaries, uh, and that was a very common thing, and, and in other places in Scripture, it even talks about this, the idea of being hospitable, opening up your home, letting them stay the night, right? Giving them a meal, these missionaries couldn't go to, you know, booking.com or Expedia to get a, a, an apartment or a hotel or a room, right? They had to stay with someone. And so Peter has that in mind, but he's also encouraging us, I think, even more so, other than just opening up our homes, right, and living for the benefit of other people, 
welcoming them in, right? It's kind of that tangible gospel. How can I live out the gospel? But he wants us to be involved in hospitality because it gives us an opportunity and it creates a space for us to worship together, to fellowship as family. People are looking to connect, right, and belong. And maybe that's why some of you are here today. You're you're looking for a church to connect with, to get to know people. And although they won't fill every need and every desire and every thought of how you should look, this is the place you come to the church to find people who are like-minded to connect with and to fellowship with. Some ways we can do hospitality, share a meal together, right? And share that meal without expecting repayment. How many of us invite somebody over and we're like, I'm not inviting them back until they invite us over again, right? It's this for that, me, them, you know, I'm not doing that again. No, that's not what God says. He says, be hospitable. And if it's not returned to you, invite them over again, especially if they need it, right? There's more to our family, the faith family, than Sunday mornings. We need to connect with each other outside the walls. We need to connect with people who are in other faith families, other churches outside of their walls, and get together and have fellowship, worship together through what we say and what we do, serve together, be hospitable We naturally look to benefit from others, right? But we need to understand that even in hospitality, we can benefit in a healthy way with others. And hospitality can be tough because it's costly. If you're like me, we're all busy and it's just easier not to do this. But we need to. We have to. Our homes need to be a place of blessing, not only to our families, you know, as a place to live, but also to be a place to be hospitable to those around us. And not just those in the faith family, but it's a great opportunity to invite people in who don't know Jesus yet and to see the gospel played out in front of their eyes. When we're hospitable, it does bring life. It brings energy to us and encouragement to others. There's a lot of positive things when we're sharing space, our space with other people. And Peter says we need to do this without grumbling. We need to do this without attitude. We need to do this with with a cheerful heart. We need to know that it is costly. It's going to cost us time and energy and, and emotional strength that we may not feel that we have. And it costs us finances to give them food. A lot of times, especially early on in ministry, I found that our best meals were when we actually had somebody over, right? That's where we would spend a little extra money. You know, the other nights we can do cereal and toast. The other nights we can do spaghetti, right? Maybe with sauce even once in a while. But when we had somebody over, we could spend a little extra because that was an opportunity to bless somebody else. And that's the way we have to view it. We need to change our mindset on that. And then as a pastor over the last nine years, I have heard so many life-changing stories that have started with somebody opening up their home to that person, bringing them in, allowing them to be a part of something, sharing a meal, giving them a listening ear in, a, in an environment, in a space that allows for people to talk. 
We need to be a people who are, is hospitable. And I know a lot of you are. A lot of you have invited us in and, and we are blessed by that. And, and, and you, I know you're inviting each other into your spaces and I'm, I'm blessed as your pastor hearing about that. I know what a sacrifice it is to open up your home on a Sunday afternoon when you want to go home and rest. Right? And yet I know that it brings a smile to God's faith. Amen? Amen. Whoop, jumped two slides there. We're getting close here. All right. The next section that we go into here in, in verses 10 and 11a, kind of the ending of this, is it's talking about gifts, spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to go kind of quick through this, right? Because we're not in 1 Corinthians where we would spend a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts. So we're just going to highlight kind of what Peter talks about here. He says, each one of us has received a gift, so if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have received a gift, sometimes multiple gifts, and you should know that. I was going to ask for hands to be raised if you know that and believe that because it's the truth, but I won't ask for the hands to go up, but I'm telling you today, I'll say it one more time. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given a or multiple gifts. We are gifted. You need to know that. You need to believe that. You may not feel that. But you need to believe it because it's the truth. You may not know what it is, but then you need to find out what it is. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So these gifts are given by God. He is a gracious gift giver. And each one of us has received a gift. No one is without uh, a gift that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And these gifts are to serve others. These gifts that you've been given are to serve others. Now, there are tests that you can take that you answer the questions. And if you answer them honestly, it'll push you towards showing you what your spiritual gift is. If you don't know what it is, you could talk to somebody that you trust. Hey, where do you see my gifting? Talk to me about who I am and the way I respond. And in light of the spiritual gifts, what do you see potentially as something that God might have given me a gift. Or if you don't know what your gift is, one of the easiest ways to figure it out is to serve. Serve in your local church. Serve in your community. It'll highlight what you enjoy doing and where your gifting might be. Right? So if you don't know what your gift is, come talk to me and I'll point you towards some service. And you might figure out quickly what your spiritual gift is. And so each one of us has gifts. There are ways we can find out what it is if you don't know what it is. But Peter says you got a gift, right? So figure out what it is and use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you give someone a gift and they don't use it, what good was the gift? How many of us have parents have bought something for Christmas or birthday and given it to their child? And I knew you know where I'm going with this and they don't use it. And you're getting frustrated and you're finally like, use the thing or I'm going to, I'm going to return it or I'm going to give it to somebody else. I spent money and, and energy, like emotional energy. I thought you would like this. God has given you a gift to bless the church with. Use it. Now, the third thing I want you to notice is there's a purpose for this. Peter's talking about a purpose for this. It's use it to serve one another. These are not for personal edification, right? This is not to build up your pride. How good can I look to everyone else, right? It's for glorifying the gift giver. How do you best glorify God, right? Serving others, ministering to others, and building the kingdom, 
That's the life we need to live towards, right? You and I. We need to love the gift giver and focus on the gift giver with our gifts, not on the gift itself. So figure out where you're gifted and serve in that area for the glory of God, which is where we started and where it's going to end, right? Paul's expanded list in 1 Corinthians, you can go and look at, gives you a great idea of all the different spiritual gifts. There are tons of great books written out there. Talk to somebody you trust, or if you know what your gift is, use it. Use it. There's a purpose that each one of us has, and it's to serve the church. We see the first thing he says, whoever speaks. There are a lot of speaking gifts, right? I see Cannon, my buddy, he's, in, he's out in kids. He's got a speaking gift, okay? It's, this isn't the first time he's approached me about things. This kid wants to share Jesus Christ. That's encouraging, right? There are some people that have been called with speaking gifts. Teaching, sharing the truth, preaching, evangelism, encouragement, tongues, leadership, Bible studies, counseling. The list could go on. Those are all valid gifts, And those are us people who don't mind opening our mouths, sometimes being wrong and learning from it, but we're willing to engage with people. Let's get together, let's talk, let's study, let's grow. So Peter says, whoever speaks. He also says, whoever serves. Some of you are like, I don't want to say a word, right? I don't want to say a word, but that doesn't mean I don't love Jesus. So can I show up? Can I set up a chair? Can I tear down a chair? Can I work in nursery? Can I work in the preschool class? Can I work in kids' ministry? Can I come a little bit early and stand at the cold door and greet everybody as they come in? Just saying hello. You don't even have to say hello. Most of the time, you guys say hello to me. So I don't even have to be the first person to talk. It's pretty great. So there are a lot of areas we can serve in our church. And so if serving, it's putting others' needs before yours. How many of you like to walk up to a building when the door's closed, especially if you're new or it's one of the first times you've been there? That's not as much fun. It's not inviting. It's not greeting you. I want somebody to be there to open the door for you. It's something small that we can do to say, hey, we want you here. We're glad that you're here. Come on in, right? We're putting others' needs before our own, right? Put others' needs before our wants. But I want to do this. I want to go home right after church and take a nap or eat my lunch, I don't necessarily want to stand in the back and engage with somebody in conversation. I don't necessarily want to stay around for 10 or 15 minutes and take down chairs, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that we can want to do, but we want to put others' needs before our own. Now, the deacon is the role here that a lot of you would fill uh, in the old biblical churches, right? It's that idea that I'm here to serve. I'm here to help out in any way that I can. And it's not just on Sunday morning. It can be throughout the week. There are, it's an important role, and it's costly. Again, it takes time. It takes energy. And there's other times where you're going to use energy and time and strength on people that you would, in your flesh, say aren't worth my time or energy. And yet, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for yourself, or are you doing it for the glory of God? I love community group. I love meeting together with community group. You get four or five families together and you get to see how each other are doing life, how we're serving in our own families, how we're serving in the church. And, and we get to spend that time encouraging each other in that way. So remember the big picture of, of Peter's letter, right? To keep our conduct honorable. Back in chapter 2, keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter has called us to be a people who live on point 
And that point is to bring honor and glory to God.